May the words of my lips and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Would you please be seated? Well, I'm preaching this morning on our Romans passage, Romans 8, verses 8 to 14. And in the first half of that passage, there's one word that rings out above all the others, isn't there? Love. Love. That's what Paul is talking about. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. This is one of the fundamental truths of morality, which the Bible presents to us over and over in the Old Testament and the New, that the whole moral law, everything that is good and right for us to do, is fulfilled in love. Everything that God ever commanded, Paul insists, flows from this principle and is under this heading. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. I think we like to hear this message, don't we? Because we like love. Everyone likes love. All you need is love, sang the Beatles, and they sold three million records. Everybody likes love, and everyone agrees that loving people sounds like a good idea. But the problem is that when we talk about love, we don't all mean the same thing. And in fact, some of us don't know what we mean. On the contrary, our personal lives and our political life are full of disagreements about what it means to love people, what that really means. Disagreements about what loving people really looks like. And even in our own minds, we have different ideas of love, clashing and competing with each other for our allegiance. We may think that loving our neighbor means supporting them in whatever decision they make affirming whatever choices or beliefs seem to make our neighbor happy. On the other hand, we may think that loving our neighbor means blasting them with the cold, hard truth, tough love. Or again, we may decide that loving our neighbor mostly means minding our own business and leaving them alone. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, Paul says, but if our idea of love is confused... If we try to love without knowing how to love rightly, then we will do wrong to a neighbor. We will do harm. Love your neighbor sounds simple, and in a way it is. It's simple, but it's not self-explanatory. To understand what it means to love our neighbor, and to really love our neighbor well, we need to know something about love first. We need to learn what true love really looks like. And so as lovely as this first half of our passage is, I'd like to spend the rest of this sermon looking at the second half, at verses 11 through 14. Paul doesn't use the word love even once in that passage, but I want to show you how these verses illuminate Paul's teaching about love in the first half here. In those verses 11 to 14, Paul shows us 
that if we really want to love our neighbors well, there's two things we have to do first. We have to wake up and we have to get dressed. You know the time, Paul says in verse 11, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Paul is summoning all Christians to wake up from the sleep of moral ignorance. One morning a few days ago, a few minutes after the alarm had gone off, I sat up and said to my family, I wonder if there will be tacos at the birthday party. From the look of confusion that met me, I could tell that what I was saying made no sense. Yes, we had in fact been invited to a birthday party. I I wasn't making that part up. But I could see in my mind's eye the little paper invitation we'd been given. And it clearly had some kind of a Mexican theme. There were little cactuses and sombreros all over it. But slowly it dawned on me, no, we had been invited by word of mouth. There was no paper invitation. That whole thing, though it seemed like a real memory at first, it was just a figment of my sleepy imagination. As I became more fully awake to reality, I began to understand that, sadly, there was no reason for me to expect tacos at this party. (laughs) So that's my silly story for the day, but it has a point, I hope. Here's the point. That when we're not fully awake yet, our sense of reality is confused. And our sense of morality works the same way, our sense of what's right and wrong. Sometimes we can be fast asleep to morality, living but not giving a single thought to the question of how we ought to live. Or we can be moral dreamers with ideas about what's right and wrong that seem ever so vivid and real, but like dreams, our ideas are only hazy shadows of reality. At best, they're half-truths, and at worst, they're total nonsense. Or again, we can be morally groggy, partly awake to reality, but with a few confused notions still lingering and clouding our thoughts. It's only when we are fully awake that we can see reality clearly and start to think clearly about it. And it's high time, Paul is telling us here, for Christians to wake up from moral ignorance and confusion. You know the time. The hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. Why? Because salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Paul wants us to think of God's work of salvation as a dawning sun. It's not way up in the sky, not yet, but it's definitely there, clearly visible on the horizon. Our Lord Jesus Christ's first coming, when he came in humility to pour out his life on the cross for our salvation. That's like the daybreak. That's when that sun appeared. And our Lord Jesus Christ's second coming, when he will come in glory to judge the living and the dead, that will be like midday. It's still in the future. We're not there yet, but the trajectory has already begun. And just as when you see the sun come up in the morning, you know that in a few hours it will be up in the middle of the sky, so too when we remember how Jesus came to shed his blood for us, we can know that in just a little while, it's only a matter of time before he returns to make our whole world new. 
The night is far gone and the day is at hand, Paul says. So now is the time to wake up. The day of judgment is coming when we all will see the light. When we all will see, either with wonderful or with terrible clarity, the true significance of what we've done, the true meaning of the way we've lived our life. But Christians know that the light has started to shine now, already. We can't see everything yet, as we will on the day of Christ's return, but already Christ's first coming has shed enough light that we can see how to live rightly. Just as the light of the morning sun wakes us up from sleep and dispels our hazy dreams, so the light of Christ's first coming into the world wakes us up from moral ignorance and confusion, and it illuminates for us what was only darkness before. I said earlier that if we want to love our neighbors well, we have to know what true love looks like first. And now that we've been loved by Jesus, we have seen what true love looks like. We do know. And it's in light of Jesus' perfect love that we can see our own feeble attempts at love for what they really are. When we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus didn't hesitate to reach out and start a conversation with a stranger. Nor was he afraid of a confrontation when love demanded it. That's how bold Jesus' love was. And it exposes how timid our love is, doesn't it? Jesus would often let himself be interrupted by someone who needed his time. And he would often share his table with sinners and tax collectors. That's how generous Jesus' love is. And it exposes how stingy we are toward our neighbors, with our time and our resources. Jesus would teach his disciples the same lesson over and over again, explaining it until they got it. And he was always ready to forgive a person's past, even to forgive those who had injured him grievously. That's how patient and merciful Jesus' love is. And it exposes how impatient and harsh our love can sometimes be. At our best moments, we want good things for our neighbors. We want them to have whatever they think will make them happy. But the love of Jesus aims much higher than that. Jesus seeks the absolute best thing for his neighbor. And he goes all out to get it. He knows that there's something more important and more wonderful than any fleeting happiness that we can cobble together in this world. There's an eternal joy and peace that comes only from reconciliation with God. And Jesus loves his neighbors by wanting that for them. And by pouring out his whole life that they might have it. This is the great light that Christ's first coming has already shed over our sleeping world. And so Paul urges us, for goodness sake, to wake up. We can't stay in bed and pull the sheets over our head and pretend we haven't seen it. We have seen it. We've seen true love in action. And so because of the love that Jesus has shown us, we have to get up and start loving our neighbor. It's time. Daytime is here, so let us walk properly as in the daytime. 
Not in orgies and drunkenness, Paul says. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. Those are examples of what Paul calls works of darkness. That's the kind of stuff we did when we were still in the nighttime of our moral ignorance. When we didn't know what true love really was. But now that we know the love of Jesus, we can't go back to things like that. No more orgies or sexual immorality, Paul says. That's not true love. Both in Paul's day and our own, there are some people who think that casual sex is a perfectly valid way to express and receive love. But that's the kind of hazy dream of someone who is still morally asleep. In the morning light of Jesus' love, we can see a different reality. Jesus reveals that true love takes the form of exclusive faithfulness. That's the way that Jesus loves us. Not giving part of himself over here and another part over there and holding something else back for himself, but giving all of himself to one lover, his bride, the church, and staying true to her forever. That's how Jesus has loved us. And in light of his love, we see that it's only right for us to pursue sexual love in marriage. No drunkenness, Paul says. While we're attracted to getting drunk or high when reality seems too boring or too stressful or too tragic for us to face it sober. And that is what reality looks like when we're still in darkness. But now the night is over and the day is at hand. And who could get drunk at a time like this? God is in the middle of saving the world. Now is not the time to numb ourselves to reality. Now is the best time ever in history to embrace reality with joy. Yes, the troubles of our lives are real. But now we see that everything in life takes place in the context of the salvation that is drawing near. The saving love of God in Jesus Christ is the ultimate reality that gives all of reality its shape and its meaning. And that will one day soon swallow up all our troubles forever. And so in light of Jesus' love, we have hope to face the world as it is. We don't need a chemical escape. No more quarreling and jealousy, Paul says. When we were living in darkness, when we couldn't yet see and think clearly, we could perceive other people as basically our competitors. If somebody else had something that we didn't, we needed to get it from them. We needed to be richer than our neighbor, stronger than our neighbor, prettier or more popular or smarter than our neighbor. But in light of Jesus' love, our view of our neighbor is transformed. In light of Jesus' love, it's changed. We can encounter a love that embraces me and my neighbor together. In Jesus, we encounter a love that even embraces me and my enemy together. In light of that love, quarreling makes no sense. If Jesus has died to reconcile us both to God, then how can we not seek reconciliation with each other? And jealousy makes no sense. If God loves both me and my neighbor with an infinite love, then I don't need to worry anymore about how we measure up against each other. I know that I'm loved as I am. All this is what waking up 
to the reality of Jesus' love does for us. Paul applies the principle to sexual immorality, drunkenness, quarreling, and jealousy, but we could apply it to anything, couldn't we? And we should. The light of Jesus' love changes how we see everything, ourselves, our world, our neighbor, and it summons us to live in a new way. Instead of doing those works of darkness, let us walk properly as in the daytime. That means let us live in a way that's fitting for the time we're living in. In the daytime, we do daytime activities. We get up, have breakfast, go to work, go to school, meet a friend at the park, whatever. It's not fitting that we should stay asleep in bed when the sun is shining. It's fitting that we should get up and go. Likewise, in the daytime of Christian faith, it's only fitting that we should get up and live a life of Christian love. If we know about the love that Jesus has shown us, then we are under an obligation, Paul says. We owe it to get up and start loving each other, to get up and start loving our neighbor as ourselves. So if we really want to love our neighbors, we have to wake up to the reality of Jesus' love. But that's not the only thing we need to do. There's one more thing. We have to wake up and we have to get dressed. That's what you all did this morning, isn't it? You didn't just wake up and then come to church just like that in your pajamas. No, you got dressed first. You put on clothes that were appropriate for what you were coming to do. Part of what we realize when we wake up to Jesus' love is that we are not yet ready for the day that lies ahead. In light of Jesus' love, we see it plain as day that we ourselves are sinners, that we're not able to love our neighbor the way that Jesus does. And that means that if we're going to get up and face the day, we need to get changed. Let us cast off the works of darkness, Paul says, and put on the armor of light. Or in an even more rich and beautiful phrase, let us put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You can do that, Paul says. If you're a Christian, if you have faith in Jesus, then you can put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In something, something like the way that you put on your shirt and your pants and your shoes this morning, you can wrap yourself up in Jesus. You can take his life and his love and his righteousness and wear it as your own. Not only can you do that, you have to do that, or you won't be ready to get up and live in this new day. Here's what clothes do. They mediate our interaction with the outside world, right? They come between us and everything else. So when you kick a soccer ball, it's your shoe that makes contact with the ball, not your naked foot. It's still you that's kicking the ball, but your shoe comes between you and the ball, right? And that changes what happens. The way that the shoe comes between you and the ball makes your kick stronger and more accurate and protects your foot. So in something like that same way, when we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, then Jesus comes between us and our neighbor. 
in every interaction. When you cross the street to chat with your neighbor, it's not just the two of you who are there, but Jesus is there with you and between you. And the presence of Jesus makes it possible for you to speak to your neighbor, to listen to your neighbor, and to love your neighbor in a way that would not be possible for your naked self alone. Yes, it's still you speaking and acting and interacting with your neighbor. But the presence and the mediation of Jesus makes your words and your deeds more than they would be otherwise. You begin to have Jesus' patience for your neighbor. To be there for your neighbor with Jesus' generosity. Maybe even to speak to your neighbor with something of Jesus' boldness. Brothers and sisters, I think this is the ultimate answer to the problem that we started off with this morning. The problem of knowing how to love our neighbor in the right way. How can we love our neighbor with a true love? With a love that really fulfills the law and that really does our neighbor no wrong? Only by putting on Jesus and loving with his love. After all, he is the one that our neighbors really need. There's nothing better that we could do for our neighbors than to bring the presence of Jesus, the Savior, with us wherever we go. And to express the perfect love of Jesus in everything we do and say. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Lord Jesus, how desperately we want you to be with us and to live through us and to clothe us in this way. So, brothers and sisters, you woke up and got dressed this morning only so that you could come to church and hear God's call to wake up and get dressed again. Wake up and get dressed for the week that is ahead of you. A week that will be full of opportunities to love your neighbor, to love those around you, maybe even to love your enemy. Wake up by looking at everything and everyone in light of Jesus' love. And get dressed by asking for his presence to clothe you and accompany you wherever you go. And may his love work in us and through us this week so that the law is fulfilled and his name is glorified in our neighbor's lives. Amen.